0: Message is part of the preaching ministry of Berlin Baptist Church in Sally, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. Well, today we are. uh, It's hard to believe every time this happens, we're nearing the end of our study through the prophecy of Zechariah. Today we're going to be in chapter 13. It's only nine verses, but this chapter of Zechariah really could almost be connected to last week, to chapter 12. I know we kind of bled over into chapter 13 last week with the first verse because it's kind of a connector. It almost sits by itself. Let me tell you what I mean. I want to give you a uh, an Old Testament verse and a New Testament verse that both have similar meaning but both speak to the theme of chapter 13. And I believe both of these will be so familiar you might could quote them. The first one comes from 2nd Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14. And oftentimes we hear that verse, but we don't remember what was said right before it. Because the context of chapter 7 verse 14 is God's discipline or judgment. Because if you read verse 13, God says to His people, If I cut off the rain, if I cut off your harvest, if these things are happening to you in in a form of discipline or judgment... It's in that context that verse 14 continues and says, And my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. So that principle of repentance is built on the fact that God has just said, If, if, if I'm having to deal with you and discipline you, because of your sinfulness, and then you humble yourselves and pray and seek My face and turn, which is the word for repent, turn from your wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin. I will heal their land. Has everyone heard that verse before? Second Chronicles 7.14? It's very well known. Then the New Testament counterpart, and, and let me back up to give context to this verse. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, the Bible says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 9, but if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just, righteous, And will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Those two verses really summarize. I was going to say speak to this subject. They don't speak to it. They summarize chapter 13 of Zechariah. There's a fountain of living water. In fact, verse 1, which we read last week at the end, and this week is at the beginning, says as much on that day there's going to be a fountain opened up for the house of David to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness in fact one, one of my favorite uh, preacher slash commentators on this particular prophecy James Montgomery Boyce he, he had a lot to say about this and, and you'll hear his name frequently today But this message, I'm I'm afraid, is maybe a little bit more brief than normal because there's some things we need to understand about this prophecy and this chapter and what is being said to God's people in this context at this time. But there's so much more application for us today to understand in our lives It's almost like I I want to go through this. I want us to understand within the context of Zechariah's prophecy, but I really want to get to what it means to us because that message is so important and so timely. I feel like that's where we need to camp out. James Boyce looked at this chapter and he said that it was so closely linked to chapter 12 that we could almost wish there had been no chapter division between 12 and 13. Because you know, uh, I don't know if you I think I've told you this before, but the, the original text of Scripture didn't have any of these numbers. This is a more modern invention for, um, made for ease of use, trying to be able to locate things, because 300 years, beyond 300 years ago, it was just the prophecy of Zechariah. it was just there it was. There were no chapter divisions, there were no verses. There what listen. There was no John 3.16. It was the Gospel according to John. There it is. There were no numbers. So, So just understand that in the context of the Bible we hold in our hands, the numbers there were inserted for our ease of use. So this division here is almost not a division. Because there's... And here's what I mean. In chapter 12, we noted a theme of repentance, which leads to chapter 13 to a theme of cleansing from sin. And those two things go together. They go together so closely, they shouldn't be separated. So, Boyce would go on to write that The time period, the time here involved in this prophecy is the period of final repentance at the end of the world history in which all Israel shall be saved, as Romans 11 would tell us. Chronologically, this means that the blessing of the purifying of the nation which is described in our chapter 13 is going to follow the repentance of the nation described in chapter 12. So, with that being said, before I get ahead of myself, Let's read these nine verses. And then I want to point out some important things in the text and then get to the application it has for us. Here's what Zechariah was inspired to write and say by God's Holy Spirit. Chapter 13, verse 1. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. And if anyone again prophesies, His father and mother who bore him will say to him, You shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he will say, I am no prophet, I am a worker of the soil, for a man sold me in my youth. And if one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against The little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver, and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, They are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you would speak to our hearts very clearly. Help us to understand and help us to obey. For your glory and our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 13, verse 1. A fountain will be opened. The first thing of chapter 13 that is so necessary for us to comprehend. Repentance precedes salvation. Repentance precedes salvation. This is a a principle... Of the gospel message that absolutely cannot be overlooked. When God calls us to Himself, He calls us to die. That's a paraphrase of one of the most famous statements made by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. In the early 20th century, he would say in his famous work, The Cost of Discipleship, when God calls a man, he bids him come and die. This shouldn't be a surprise to us, right? Didn't Jesus say something almost exactly like that? Because I believe if I go back and turn to Luke's Gospel in chapter 9... I'm going to read these words. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. The cost of discipleship is high. It's not a call to a simple life. It's not a call to uh, a life free from persecution or obstacles or challenges. In fact, it may be the exact opposite. Because what it's a a call to is, um, here, if you're going to wear the jersey that signifies you're on the team of Christ, then... The name on your back doesn't say McCormick or Simmons or Brown or Jeffcoat or Sharp. It says Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. And because that's what it says, it's like a homing beacon. That attracts the ire and the hatefulness of the enemy. So, a call to Christ is not a call to simplicity, it's not a call to a life of ease. It is, however, a call to salvation but the cost is high this fountain that's open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem verse 1 says clearly it will cleanse them from sin and uncleanness going back to James voice, he asks the question where does this cleansing from sin's power and defilement come from It comes from the fountain. And what is that? Clearly, the fountain that will be open to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem is the blood of the Messiah whom they pierced. I hate to give a spoiler, but in a few minutes, when this is... This little message is complete. We're going to sing a song. And it's not the one that's printed in your bulletin. It's a different song that has a more um, appropriate message for today. There's a fountain filled with blood. Drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. This fountain is opened by the sacrifice of Christ. It's poured out on those who have just repented of their sins and turned. Second Chronicles 7.14 If they'll humble themselves and pray, seek my face, and turn... One of the most difficult hurdles, I believe, to repentance, true repentance, is the Bible doesn't say if you're called by my name and you humble yourself and pray and seek my face and continue to live exactly how you were living before you heard the gospel. It doesn't say that anywhere in the Bible. What it says is, humble yourself, pray, and turn. That's literally what the New Testament Greek word for repentance means. Turn. Turn from sin. Turn to Jesus. That's what it means to repent. One commentator would say that the the most genuine form of repentance is a change of behavior. But it's brought about by the fountain, filled with blood. Repentance precedes salvation. Number two, idolatry and false teaching are enemies of God's people. And perhaps not just enemies. Perhaps they are the greatest enemies. Because when you see this first principle, repentance precedes salvation, and then you see the second one about idolatry and false teaching, there's all kinds of different things that could be listed. But these are the two that get listed. These are the two that God gives attention to and more time to explain. Idolatry is so far-reaching and so broad in its application and so sneaky. Because it's not just a carved image. It could be most anything. It could be a, a certain level of success. It could be a career. It could be um, possessions. It could be monetary wealth. It could be um, relationship. It could be a family setting. It could, it, it could be a number of good things that could be turned into an idol. It doesn't have to be something that's blatantly evil to be an idol. Did you know that? I heard a pastor say you can take a good thing, make it a God thing, then it becomes a bad thing. Because anything that displaces Christ on the throne in your heart is an idol. Anything that matters more than Christ can be an idol. Anything we worship more than Christ, it's a functional God. And so the Bible says very, very clearly in verse 2, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts declares, I will cut off the names of the idols. And look how extensive it is. You won't even remember them. Not just I'm going to get rid of them. But they're going to be so far gone and out of your life, you won't even have a recollection of what it was. That's pretty complete. So, the fact that Zechariah singles out these, only these two evils that plagued the nation before they went off into captivity... That's a, a kind of a big deal. In fact, he makes three points here in this section from verse 2 to verse 6. He makes three points about this purification process. First, he says, the idols will be so thoroughly removed, even the memory will be forgotten. Because you know what happens? Sin lingers in your mind. You can, you can get away from it. And, and by the way, this was the... This was the chief failure of monasticism in the history of the church. When when the monks would go off to a monastery and try to separate themselves from the world so that they could be closer to God and be more holy, guess what they can't ever get away from? Their mind. Their heart. See, when sin gets a hold of you, it gets into your mind. It gets into your memory. It gets into your heart. You can go uh, as far away from other people and other things as you want to go and you can't escape what's in your mind already. Your thoughts. There's enough evil right up there, right in here. So the first point is that In this day, when this purification takes place, even the memory of the idols will be taken away. The second thing he says is that zeal for the Lord is going to be so great that the people won't even tolerate the existence of false prophets. You want to know how uh, extensive that is? Look at what the text says um, down in verse 3. Even the parents of the false prophets... The the parents of the false prophets will be the first ones to initiate the death of the false prophet. That's exactly what it says in verse 3. His father and his mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. That's pretty serious. When your mom and dad, I, I, I I know you're my boy, but hey, you're lying in the name of God. We can't have that. When mom and dad start the charge, you know it's serious. The third thing he says is that even those who have been false prophets will be so ashamed of their past, they'll do everything possible to deny it, to hide it. Verse 4, every prophet will be ashamed. Verse 5, he'll say, oh no, I'm not a prophet. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a farmer. Yeah, I don't, I don't, do, I don't do that stuff. And then verse 6, talking about this hairy cloak, this, this uh, I guess, the garb of a prophet, scratches up your back. So verse 6 talks about, well, wh- where would you get these scars if you're not a prophet? And, and I want you to notice the answer, the end of verse 6. He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. You know who his friends were? False gods. Items. that's where he got the scars from spending all that time being a false teacher so in this paragraph the idolatry the false teaching is going to be completely exterminated from God's people because those two things have risen to the top of the list as the chief enemies of God's people Lastly, number three, God sacrificed His Son for our salvation. These last few chapters of Zechariah are just overflowing with Jesus' prophecies. Over and over and over. When we get to verse 7, I want you to look very carefully at the wording here. Who is speaking in verse 7? It's the Lord, God. The Lord of hosts. That's important because look what he says. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Against the man who stands next to me. Who stands next to God the Father? God the Son. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I'll turn my hand against the little ones. God Himself is awakening a sword against His own Son. The one who stands next to Him. The chief shepherd. And He did that for the benefit of sinners like us. And if you don't believe that, just take a stroll back to the book of Isaiah and look at chapter 53. We're familiar with Isaiah 53.5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him and by His stripes we're healed. But what about verse 6? The Lord... has caused caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon Him. How about verse 10? It was the Lord's good pleasure to crush Him. Do you see how much God loves us? He crushed His own Son For the salvation of sinners. C.F. Kyle, after reading this, said, He whom God calls His neighbor, or the one who stands beside Him, could not possibly be a mere man, but can only be one who participates in the divine nature, or is essentially divine, namely, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So, the solution to our problem was the incarnation. God become man. The meaning of the verse is the atonement. Christ shedding His blood for sinners. It's God the Father striking down His own Son. The Lord Jesus Christ in our place as our Sin bearer, it's Jesus suffering for us, so we might be delivered from the wrath of God against sin, and be released to serve the Lord effectively. That's James Boyce. See all this, all this stuff just points us over and over back to Jesus, because that's where we ulti- ultimately have to go. We have to go back to Jesus. So speaking of Jesus, let's go back to Matthew chapter 26. Jesus is in the garden with His disciples. Do you remember what He told them? He quoted Zechariah 13.7. Because He looked at the twelve and He said, All of you will fall away tonight on account of Me. You remember that? And then he said, For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Read it in your Bible. Zechariah thirteen, seven, the second half of the verse, strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. Jesus was quoting this prophecy just like He did in the last chapter and the chapter before that and the chapter before that. They will look on Him whom they have pierced and there will be great mourning and weeping in the land. See, over and over, this was, this was written... 500 years before Jesus was born Isaiah 53 was written 750 years before Jesus was born Psalm 22 was written 1,000 years before Jesus was born If we don't believe it's because we have determined in our minds we are not going to believe It's not because it's not true We have a mountain of truth to show us who Jesus is. Show us what He's done. To enable us to believe. To trust in Christ. To repent of our sins. This whole book, not just the prophecies, not just the New Testament, not just the Gospels, this whole book is a Gospel message. It's all about Jesus from beginning to end. Everything in it points us to Jesus. Jesus knew His mission from before time. And He still willingly followed. He He did all this. On purpose. He told us as much. In, in, In John... 13, about his love, greater love, John 15, 13, greater love has no man. He laid down his life for his friends. You remember what else he said about that? Nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own volition that I might raise it up again. He knows what he's doing. He always has. That makes it all the more unbelievable. When you move from chapter 12 to chapter 13 of Zechariah, you're highlighting this story of the Gospel that Jesus came to die for our sins so we would be set free and reconciled with God the Father. So we're called to repent of our sins, to turn and to believe the Gospel of Christ by grace through faith in Him alone. That's the message of the Gospel. The whole point of the Bible is that we would look to Jesus. Did you you know that? Have you ever seen it from start to finish like this? Every part of Scripture is meant to cause us to see Jesus. That when we would see Jesus we would be driven to repent. It's just like Romans chapter 2 and verse 4. Do we not know it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance? And when you understand the progression of this statement, you see God's kindness leads us to repentance. Our repentance leads to God's salvation. So not only does God save us by sacrificing His own Son, God is kind toward us to compel us to do the one thing that has to be done for us to believe in Jesus. You see how He's left no detail out? Every part of this, God has just put it in place for us so it would have to be Our own sinful, deliberate decision not to see Jesus. If your eyes are open and your ears are open and your heart and mind are clear, there's no way you can look at the gospel and not see Jesus. It's it's impossible. If you have an open heart and an open mind and you read this book, you're getting saved. It's just that simple. It all points to Jesus. So, if that is the case, how terrible is it for us not to follow Jesus? If it is so obvious that this book points us to Christ. Everywhere we look, everything we read points us to Christ. If that's true, what kind of heart and mind would we have to have to ignore Jesus? And I don't mean... I don't mean ignore like, well, we just are not believing. I don't think that's where our problem is. I think our problem is far, far deeper than that. I think our problem is not in belief. I think our problem is in repentance. I don't think we have any trouble especially in our geographical, cultural location. I mean, we might as well be on the buckle of the Bible Belt. I don't think we have any problem agreeing that the Bible is good and true. I don't think anybody would... I mean, re, I mean things are, have changed over the years and so... I know in in increasing numbers there are those who just are, you know, totally against the Bible and church and God and all that. But I don't think we're I don't think we have a problem of saying the Bible's not true or I don't believe in God. I don't don't think that's our our main issue. I think our main issue is, yeah, I believe in God, but I'm just I don't want to I don't want to change what I'm doing. I'm quite comfortable. And by the way, when somebody says to me, only God can judge me, here's what that means. Let me translate it for you. Leave me alone and let me sin in peace. That's all that means. I've heard it so many times from so many different people for the last 25 years As soon as somebody goes to mention anything, I I mean, I look at my own life and I, I think there's plenty of things people could pick on about me. I mean, there's plenty of sins that you could pick out of my life. But if I say something, if somebody were to point those out to me, what right do I have to say, you can't judge me? Why don't I just say, yep, you're right, I'm a guilty sinner in every way you just described because that's that's really what I'm what I'm saying. The phrase "you can't judge me" is an admission of guilt. It's a feeling of conviction. Change my mind. Our problem is with repentance. I don't like to admit that I'm wrong. Anybody else? I don't get in line so I can admit all my shortcomings and all my failures and all my character flaws. I don't want to think about that, much less tell people about them. Because then I have to do something about it, right? And that's uncomfortable. See, this is where this passage gets past the veneer and really kind of sticks a knife in your heart. And then you have to deal with it. And all too often, for far too long, many, many people across our country show up at a building similar to this at 10 or 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. And they hear a preacher. They sing some songs. Maybe they throw a few dollars in a plate. They close their eyes and bow their head sometimes for a prayer. And they leave and they're unaffected by Christ. They've done their religious duty for the week, and their lives are no different. Where are the Christians? Where are the people Who live differently? Where are we? Why aren't we more visible? Why are our numbers not greater? Why is there not greater influence in our communities, in our workplaces, in our schools? It's because we have forgotten what it looks like to live in repentance. We're just, we're just checking our boxes. We're just doing our weekly religious duty and we're clearing our conscience and then we're just business as usual. That's so sad. That, that's not what Jesus bled for. Jesus died for transformation. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's why the blood was shed. That's why the body was broken. That's why there was a crucifixion. It wasn't so we could all live comfortably. But as my good friend Russ Hubbard told me one time, many people are content in what they're not doing. And so as long as we're content, we have no desire to change. And as long as we have no desire to change, we'll have no influence in the community. Our churches will remain weak and powerless and of no real effect in the world. And until that changes, we won't see revival not in the church not in the community not in the in the nation not in the world we we owe god more than that don't we he he gave so much for us and it just it seems like we're not willing to give even the bare minimum to him in response. And it's just I, I don't understand it. I know how hard it is. Because I don't <laughs> I don't do it either. I don't I don't always do what I'm supposed to do. I know the I know how how the struggle feels. And I just don't understand it. I don't understand how such a large category of people who claim to be changed by the blood of Christ can look no different than anyone else. I just don't get it. We need We need to pray for ourselves. We need to pray for our hearts. We need to pray for our our family and friends, our our church body. We need to pray for one another that Jesus will really grab hold of our hearts and and jumpstart us somehow. We can't continue... It's the definition of insanity. Doing the same thing over and over in the same way and expecting a different result. It's never going to happen. And I don't know how much time we have left until Jesus returns. But all I know is today is one day closer than yesterday. We need to get to work. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. For more information on Berlin Baptist Church, we invite you to explore our website at www.berlinchurchsc.org.